have a lot of empathy for people who um, are sort of freaked out by Christianity or kind of are standoffish about Christianity based on the idea that we believe some pretty bizarre things, right? Um, now, now, while I wholeheartedly believe all of the claims in Scripture, uh, I also have a, a category in my mind where I can empathize and say, yeah, some of these claims are bizarre, right? Um, like, let's just start with the fact that we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, right? I mean, anyone that's taken, like, a ninth grade, like, anatomy and physiology class knows that that's a really complex thing to pull off, right? Um, and then on top of that, we have these claims that Jesus starts walking around and doing all of these miracles, and he's, you know, uh, he's turning water into wine, he's healing, you know, the sight, he's messing with nature, right? He's, he's calming storms and, you know, all of these things. And then to top it all off, there's this crazy claim that he died and then stopped being dead. And that in and of itself is an absolutely crazy thing when you think about it. And if we've been churched for any period of time, we hear those things. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of the whole Christian thing. He was born this way. He was born of a virgin, and he did miracles, and he you know, rose from the grave. And that, that's all very normal. But if, if, if you didn't grow up in the church world, let's just acknowledge, like, that, that's crazy, right? Like, that's, that's crazy, and, and so when I talk to people uh, about Christianity and whenever they have questions about stuff, um, one of the things I hear is that there's just crazy claims that are just kind of hard to wrap our mind around. But one of the other things that, 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 that I hear um, most co commonly is the idea that they can't really vibe with uh, the, the perceived difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Right, that, that, that is a major hang-up. Right? If they can get past the miracles, then the next thing is, well, when I read Scripture, it, it looks like the God of the Old Testament is really angry and vengeful and spiteful and violent. And then the God of the New Testament is all love and grace. And, like, I mean, just, I mean, I don't know what to do with that. Right? Um, on a side note, I actually believe that when you read the Old Testament, you find that some of these stories, I mean, God is full of grace, right? Like, our God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and so the God of the Old Testament is just as gracious as he is in the New Testament, but I also understand why people might think that, and I understand that because the text that we're going to read today is one of those texts that can throw people for a loop. It's a really dark text. In fact, I won't bury the lead. In our text today, uh, God tells a guy named Eli that he's going to kill his two sons. It's heavy, right? And it's really easy to read a text like that and think, what? Why would anyone serve a God like that? Why would anyone follow a God that tells a guy he's going to kill their kids? That doesn't sound like a God that I want to serve. That doesn't sound like a God that I want to follow. And so what I want to do today is really simple. I want us to walk through this text, and I want to pull out three things that we see, because what I, I, I hope that you see is that in the midst of a, a, a very heavy situation, there are some beautiful truths about our God. And, and I hope that by the end of this, our, our affections for our God are actually stirred, that we see him as, as beautiful and gracious, as opposed to this kind of cultural idea of violent and vengeful and spiteful, right? So let's, let's kind of do some work. We'll dive in. This is First Samuel 2, starting in verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said, said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father, when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh, 
Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest and to go up to my altar to burn incense to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and, and, and the house of your father should go in and out before me f- f- forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. There shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you, that both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put put me in one of the priest's places that that I may eat a morsel of bread. It's heavy, right? Um, what's going on here? There's a lot going on here. And so let me kind of begin to just walk through and, and pull out a few things. One of the things that we see in this text that may not pop off the page immediately is that God is patient. God is patient. Um, <clears throat> without any context of what's happening here, it may feel like, like God just gets really upset or he feels slighted. And so he goes to this guy and says, hey, I'm going to wipe out your family line. I'm going to kill your two sons. They will die on the same day. But that's not really what's happening here. It's not that God just all of a sudden in some sort of rash, reckless moment of anger, he, he, he decides to do this. Um, this is an oracle that comes down after years and years and years and years and years of evil that takes place before God ever moves, before God ever does something. Um, if you look back in uh, verse 22 of Samuel 2, there's a phrase, and, and Wayne mentioned this last week. It says, now Eli was very old. That's a very important phrase. So, so Eli is old, therefore his sons are also older. And he kept hearing. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Um, let me kind of explain contextually what's happening here. Um, Eli, as an old man, right, he is, he is the priest. He, he is the spiritual leader of Israel. Right? His job is, is to mediate between the people of God and God himself. I mean, these are supposed to be the most elite people when it comes to holiness. No one should take holiness more seriously than the priests. And over and over, there, there are two primary things that, that um, the sons of Eli were doing. One is they were taking the, the choicest pieces of every offering for themselves. Um, 
in the Levitical law, there, there are certain, certain concessions made for priests that whenever it's sacrifice time, that, that they do eat some of the sacrifice. So in uh, Deuteronomy 18.3, for instance, it says that priests were entitled to a shoulder, two cheeks, and the stomach. In Leviticus uh, 7.31-32, it says that in another sacrifice, they are entitled to the breast and the thigh. But what's happening here is that people are bringing their sacrifice and, and, and before the sacrifice was burned, the sons of Eli are, are, are walking up to them and, and they are scoping it out and they are taking the finest piece of meat off of this animal and they're just cutting it off and taking it for themselves, which is an abomination, right? Like, like that moment like alone shows that they have paid no regard to the holiness of God. They, they're making a mockery of the sacrificial system, right? And, and if anyone if anyone should care about the holiness of God, if anyone should care about taking the sacrifices seriously and, and honoring God in that way, it's, it's the priests. Yet they are literally preying on the people of Israel as they come to make sacrifices. And then in this other verse, we hear Eli say that, that he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they're also sleeping with women outside the temple. And so what's happening here is that for years, they have been predators. These are priests that are preying on the people of Israel, the people of God, to fulfill their physical and sexual appetites. That's dark, right? And God doesn't do something the first time this happens. God doesn't do something the second time it happens. God doesn't do something the third time it happens. This goes on for years until old man Eli says, hey, why do I keep hearing? It's like, keep hearing? You heard once and did, didn't do anything about it? Why do you keep hearing these, these stories of, of you preying on the people of Israel? Like, there's been years and years and years where God doesn't do anything. And so the question is, why? Well, why doesn't God step in and do something about that evil? Well, it's because God is patient. If you look at the, the character of God throughout all of Scripture, um, we see that, that, that God is patient, that he is uh, slow, as some may say. So, so 2 Peter 3, 9 says, says this. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all shall reach repentance. He's not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the reason why God does not move immediately is because he longs for repentance. He, he, he's hoping that, that his priests of all people will recognize the gravity of their sin, will recognize the evil that they are doing in the world and that they will turn and repent. And he's expecting Eli their father, both a father and their priest, to step in and say, enough, enough. This is not how we operate. This is pure evil, but it doesn't happen. And so God waits, God is patient, longing, hoping for repentance. And when no repentance happens, God moves. So I want to make sure that, 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 that this is not God flying off the handle the first time that he sees something that makes him upset. This is God waiting patiently, hoping that someone will repent. But eventually, he has to move. He has to act, right? So two things I want to, I want to point out here, just on, on an applicational level. 
Um, some of you might be in the room where you have been or are on the receiving end of someone who is living in habitual unrepentant sin. And it is affecting you deeply. And when you are wounded, when, when someone's sin affects you and wounds you, there is, there is a part of us that longs for God to do something. And we think, God, why aren't you moving? Why aren't you doing anything about this? God, why, why are you letting this person just run rampant with their sin? What may be happening is God may be waiting for them to repent, giving them, graciously giving them room to recognize their sin and repent. If you find yourself in that position, would you consider praying for that person's repentance? Would you consider praying for that person to repent? Because that's what God longs for, is, is for people to repent and to come back, to recognize the gravity of their sin. Others of you, you may be living in habitual unrepentant sin. You may be in a place where you feel as if maybe this isn't that big a deal. Maybe God doesn't really care. Because if we're honest, there's, there are certain sins, there are certain kind of sin patterns in our life that, that the first time we experience it, we feel guilt, we feel shame, we can't believe ourselves. And then it happens again, and then we realize, you know, like, I didn't get struck by lightning. And then we do it again, and I'm still standing. My life doesn't seem that different. Like, maybe this isn't that big a deal. Maybe God doesn't care. Make no mistake, God cares. God cares about your holiness. God cares about the sin that you are committing. But if God doesn't step in immediately, it's because he longs for you to repent. He is gracious and giving you space to recognize the gravity of your sin and to say, Lord, I'm sorry, and I'm turning. This week I have, I have been praying that the, at least one person in the room, that this is a, an Ebenezer stone or a stone of remembrance, that, that this is a moment in time when the Holy Spirit stirs your heart in such a way that you say, enough, I'm, I'm done. It is by the grace of God that I have not felt the consequences of my sin up to this point that this is a wake-up call, that this is a moment for you to turn to your gracious heavenly father and to confess and to repent because God is patient. But while God is patient, there's absolutely consequences for our sin. There are absolutely consequences to our sin. I want to clarify something really quick. Um, there is a difference between God punishing sin and there being consequences for sin. If you are a believer in the room, your sin has already been punished. Your sin has already been paid for on the cross when Jesus took the brunt of your sin, when Jesus paid the price for your sin. So I don't want any believer in this room walking around feeling like, man, if I sin and if I keep sinning, you know, habitually, um, then, then, then God's going to punish me or kill my kids, right? Like, like that, 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 that's not what's happening here. We serve a father that, that, that has already poured out his wrath on Jesus. And so you get to walk free. Romans 8 says there's now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Like celebrate that fact. So, so sin has already been punished if you are in Christ, but there might be consequences for your sin. That, that, that's just part of how life operates, right? If you lie to somebody, 
and they find out about it, it's probably going to strain that relationship. That's a consequence, right? If you steal, that's, that's, that's going to have a consequence. It might strain a relationship. There might be legal action, right? Like there are always consequences for our sin. And, and so um, what I want to make sure that we understand is that we don't take sin lightly and that we also understand that there are con- consequences. And in this specific instance, the consequence for the sin of Eli's sons is that there is a, um, a, a cutting off of Eli's family line. It's a crazy consequence. Now, there's two ways to look at this. One, one way is to look at it and say, see, this is what I'm talking about. This is that angry, vengeful, spiteful guy who's just doing crazy things because he's angry. That is one way to look at it. Or you can see this consequence as an act of grace. Um, there is a theological concept that, that, that we don't talk a lot about in the church, and it's this idea of generational sin. And we get, get this idea from um, passages like Deuteronomy 5, 9 through 10 uh, that says, says this. It says, you shall not bow down to them, meaning idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. This key, key phrase, of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, so this phrase right, right here, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Um, in our English tra- translation, it, it, it tends to sound like, like maybe the third and fourth generation are, are, are going to be punished for the sins of the father. But that's not actually what it means here. Um, the, the, the phrasing in Hebrew is more that this idea that, that the sins of the father will be felt or, exper- or, or, yeah, felt or experienced all the way down to the third and fourth generation generation. That, that, that your sin and my sin, if it's less left unaddressed, if, if we don't cut off the head of the snake, so to speak, of our sin, then our, our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids may feel and, and battle the same sin struggles that we do, right? Um, there's, a, there's, there's an exercise that I've seen therapists do. It's called a genogram, where you essentially kind of map out your family tree. And you map out as, as, as high up as you can think, whether it's grandparent, great-grandparent, and then you start to kind of map out sin, sin patterns. Are there uh, estrangement? Are there broken relationships? Is there infidelity? Is there uh, substance abuse? Is there anger? Is there violence? Is there, you know, all of these things? And, and what typically happens is that you'll notice two things. You'll see generational blessing of, of wow, what a heritage I come from. That, that there is a godly men and godly women in my family tree that, that have raised us and discipled us in a way where man, there's, there's really not a lot of brokenness in my family tree. Or we identify generational patterns, generational sin, where it's like, man, my grandpa did this and my dad did this and, and, and now I do this. Like my, my, my grandpa was angry. My dad was angry and, and, and I'm angry and, and I'm looking at my kid and I'm beginning to think, like, I, th- I think my kid's angry. There's all these things that, that if we don't step in and cut off these sin patterns, these sin struggles, if it doesn't stop with us, then it, then it can become generational. What God is doing here is a very gracious thing for the people of Israel. Because there's starting to be this generational pattern of men in spiritual authority, spiritual leadership, taking advantage of the people of Israel. And that is not a sin 
that it's okay to be passed on to generations. That is a very dark, heavy thing. And so God, in his grace for the people of Israel, says, I'm going to make sure that the people of Israel no longer have to experience this type of evil in the world. And so God steps in, and God cuts off the family tree. Why? Because he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. The children of Eli hated God. Make no mistake. These are not God followers. Right? Earlier in this chapter, it says that they did not know the Lord. They had no regard for the things of God. They had no regard for the holiness of God. They had no respect for God. They used their spiritual leadership position to prey on people and to abuse people. And out of God's kindness to the people of Israel, he cut that off. Because there are consequences for sin. And so again, for us, um, <clears throat> a sobering reality as I've been kind of processing this passage all week is um, this idea of what am I passing on? What are the sin patterns that I am passing on? We, me and my wife have a four-month-old baby boy in the back, and um, by the grace of God, he has inherited some amazing stuff from her, primarily her looks. Um, it's a good thing for him, and once he gets to middle school and all that stuff. But um, I, I, I find myself looking at him, and it's a sobering thought of, I've just kind of been living my life, and now I have this, this son that I love with all of my heart, and like, what are the things I'm going to pass on to him? Or what are the things that I can cut off in my own life right now? And pray that God is gracious, that, that any of these sin patterns, they, they stop with me. And that for the next three to four generations, what they see is they see love and joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit, as opposed to anger and bitterness and arrogance and pride and all of these things, right? And so the question for us as a body just to be pondering is, yeah, we know that there are consequences for our sin, but what are the things that we can cut off? What are the things that we can go ahead and cut off so, so that we avoid consequences, both for us and for our kids and our kids' kids. So the first two things we see in this text is that one, God is patient. Two, that, that there are consequences for our sin. But three, we see that God honors faithfulness. That God honors faithfulness. He talks about raising up a new priest. And he's, and he's referencing Samuel. He's raising up a new priest who is going to be faithful. Um, when we look at the way that our culture operates, um, the things that get rewarded are not typically characteristics that we find in Scripture. In fact, no, if you think, think, think about what uh, believers are supposed to be marked by, like say like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, faithfulness, self-control, like those types of things, those aren't the types of things that we, especially men, I'll talk about men for a second, uh, that we aren't rewarded for. Right? I mean, like, like, when was the last time that you heard someone at work be like, dude, you should have seen Joe in that negotiation? <sighs> gentle. <laughs> right? I mean, gentle, peaceful. I mean, dude, no one closes a deal like gentle Joe. You know what I mean? Like, there's no, like, no, like, that's, that's not how we operate. Right? Like if, like, like, if someone talks about someone being gentle or peaceful, it's like, oh, sweet guy. He's so gentle. He's never going to succeed. 
Never going to get promoted. Like, unless you're a yoga instructor, gentleness and peacefulness are not going to get you promoted, right? Like, that's just not how the world operates. And so what tends to happen is, is that we are savvy enough to look at the world and say, all right, well, I'm going to compartmentalize. And on Sunday, on Sunday or with my family or with my Christian friends, that's when I'm going to be, you know, Christian. But, man, i got to provide for the family. i got to put food on the table. I have to advance. I, like, like, I, can't, I can't be defined by these things. And so what happens is that we live lives that, that aren't honoring to God or aren't faithful to God in every aspect of our lives because we think that's how we get ahead. That's how we succeed. And the reality is that in the economy of God, God honors the faithful. God, God doesn't use perfect people, to be clear, but God honors faithful people right? And he's going to take this kid, Samuel, who's just faithful, and he's going to use him in profound ways for his glory and for the good of the people of Israel. And if you look broadly at the types of people that God uses all throughout scripture, um, they're never perfect. In fact, they're all very complicated, messy, sinful people, but they're faithful. Whether it's Abraham or Moses or David, they're just faithful. They just want to do what God calls them to do. They want to strive to be holy. They want to strive to obey God. They, they, they want to strive to just be faithful to the things that God calls them to. And in doing that, God honors them. God lifts them up. And so when I think about this text, right, again, heavy text. Welcome to Fourth Bubble Church. If you're a visitor, sorry. Um, this is the wrong day to show up. I'm just kidding. Um, my hope with all of this is that we um, see both a warning and an encouragement. I hope the warning that we see is, is, is that God does take sin seriously. That God takes sin seriously. That there are consequences for your sin. And if you have yet to feel or experience the consequences for your sin, that is purely the grace of God in your life. That is the grace of God saying, hey, I'm, I, please come back to me. Please come back to me, right? So may that be a sobering warning for us that, that, that God takes sin seriously and that we should do something about it. But I also hope that you see an encouragement. And that encouragement being that, the, that we do serve a God that's patient. A God that doesn't immediately always treat our sins the way that they deserve to be treated. That we serve a God who honors the faithful. And a God that, that, yes, he punishes sin, but for those of us in the room that are in Christ, God has punished Jesus instead of us. That, that all of our sin, all of just our wickedness and evilness, like all of that, Christ took, took on the cross. And so I'm going to actually uh, transition us into um, communion here. So if you're on the communion team, you can go ahead and bring up the um, elements. Um, every week, uh, we gather around the table and... I want us to be very strategic about how we think, think about it this week. Because the reason why we can approach the table uh, with joy, with confidence, is because we know that when, when we read texts like this, while there are con consequences for our sin, our, the penalty for sin has been taken away. It's already been paid for. And so as we drink the wine and eat the bread, May it be a, a, a true celebration for what Christ has done. Because our fate is not the same fate as the sons of Eli.
Amen? Our fate is that we get to approach our God with boldness, with confidence, calling him both king and father because of what he has done through Christ on the cross. And so um, I'm going to pray over our meal. And then I'm going to invite the ushers to kind of guide folks up and then take your elements and then we'll all take them to, together as a body. God, you are kind and you're gracious and you're patient. And in the midst of um, some pretty heavy ideas, um, God, my hope is that we are uh, just enamored by how you operate, that you are um, a God that is not okay with evil. A God who... Um, who goes to great lengths to, to love and to care for his people, to protect us from the evil in the world. But even though we are evil, you show kindness and grace to us. And so God, as, as we uh, remember the death of your son, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood, God, may our hearts be stirred for more of you. May we stand in awe of your grace to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.